0: all right what's up everybody what's up? so for you guys that don't know me my name's is clinton edwards um, it's my wife victoria here in the front row we have three kids there's maggie zeke and hannah um, we've been coming to one life i want to say since the end of covid but yeah so like the end of quarantine so like two-ish years ago oh yeah there we go um <laughs> so i usually uh serve in production doing the lights or uh, Wednesday nights I'm with Switch. I teach the high school boys, um, so I'm really used to like a lot of feedback talking and some sass. Jim's already covered us over there today, so we're good on that. Um, and if I'm not here, I'm actually a Columbia firefighter. We do 24 hours on, 48 hours off. So like, public service announcement: If I'm here, I'm actually a really friendly guy. I'm really tired all the time. Like, you can ask Ashley. I drink like four cups of coffee during the course of a sermon. So like. I'm a really nice guy, don't take it that way. Also, like one more public service announcement, if Jim ever asks you to come up and speak, go ahead and go to your Facebook and get rid of any picture that you don't (laughs) want him to put up. Like, when he put his announcement up that I was speaking, he put two up and one was a wonderful family picture that Amanda Jansen actually took and one was a picture right after Maggie had shot me with silly string. And he's like, he doesn't care if you know about it. Like he was liking photos from like four years ago. Like he was hardcore Facebook stalking the whole process. <laughs> so as everybody knows, I'm kind of saying I like we've been in COVID for the past two years. Um, it's a constant news cycle about it and everybody's super exhausted about it. Nobody wants to talk about it anymore. But one of the interesting things that's come out of it is some new terminology, uh, one being pandemic depression. And I'm sure everybody's heard about it. Everybody knows someone or has experienced someone on your own. And I actually like looked up a couple headlines just to see what I could find. And so 25% increase in anxiety and depression since COVID. Postpartum has tripled since COVID. COVID causes a spike in teen depression ER-linked visits. And this one's really strange, but it's a, there's been a link between buying guns and depression during COVID. I would argue there's some other political, social climate situations in that one, but... Yeah. <laughs> there's no doubt that like, depression is this hot-button issue in society now. We talk about it all the time. It's all over the place. But today we're going to try to look at it through what God would want us to do with depression. Like, what's the biblical viewpoint of depression? We're going to be all over the place in the Bible, so I don't have a let's stand and read a certain scripture. Just hang out with me for a little bit. Um, we're just going to jump around. So my first point is there's a lot of questions I'm going to ask so the first one is like is depression a biblical thing we hear a lot and there's a lot of fears that like well like brandon alluded to like he found jesus this world life's gonna be great everything's better but like it's not really how a lot of it works for most of us so the first verse we're going to look at comes from lamentations which a little background if you're not really familiar with an obscure old testament book such as lamentations um like jim talked about last week with uh, jonah like the assyrian empire taking over and destroying it, Jerusalem. So Lamentations is written at the very beginning of that, and traditionally um, we recognize Jeremiah as the author of it. There's some debate, but for the most part it's Jeremiah. So, you, yeah, that's up, cool. So, my eyes are worn out from weeping. I'm churning within. My heart is poured out in grief because of the destruction of my dear people, because the children and infants faint in the streets of the city. I think it's pretty obvious like there's some severe sadness going on in that verse I mean the idea that his eyes hurt from weeping and that his heart's poured out like there's nothing left in him this type of writing also gives Jeremiah the nickname of like the weeping prophet or like the sad prophet so like he's known as the depressed prophet (laughs) so you don't have to put it up yet actually but next we're gonna jump over to uh, Jonah so I know Jim talked about Jonah last week but Jonah is my favorite book of the Bible so I'm gonna talk about it again because I have the mic and I have the power right now, so like, there's not really much you can do about it. (laughs) So so we all know the story of Jonah. God tells Jonah, go talk to Nineveh. He says no, and he runs to Tarsh, which anybody that's familiar with biblical geography, that's so like, yeah, the entire Bible's around the Mediterranean Sea. Tarsh is actually outside the Straits of Gibraltar on the Atlantic Ocean. So it would have been the farthest place he could have possibly run from Nineveh to go there. So he goes to run, massive storm, sailors throw him overboard, giant fish eats him and kind of forces him back to Nineveh. At that point, Jonah's like, all right, fine, I'll go to Nineveh. And he gives what's considered, sarcastically, the greatest sermon of all time. He literally says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. Nothing else. And then it says, all of Nineveh repents, even down to the cows. So what happens after this? Like there's a fourth chapter that people don't even read. So he gets super sad. He says, "Now Lord, take my life away, for it's better for me to die than to live." And it's weird because you would think he'd be very happy, but a lot of like what Jim said, Assyria was a terrible empire. Like they were killing people in the streets. They're not nice people, they're very violent. And Jonah is so upset that he allowed these people to have mercy. In fact, he goes on in this chapter to say like, the whole reason he ran wasn't because he was afraid of Nineveh, which is what a lot of people say. Like, Jonah ran because he was afraid. He said he ran because he knew God would give them mercy, and he didn't believe that they deserved the mercy. All right, so last one. We're going to jump, and we're going to talk about Elijah. So where we're jumping in at, Elijah just defeated the prophets of Baal. Um, many of you guys have heard the story. It's He challenges all these prophets to come together to set their altar on fire, to pray to their gods and have their gods like the altar on fire. And he insults them a lot. It's pretty funny, biblical insults. And then he actually pours water on his altar to mock them even more and then prays to God. And his fire burns so hot, it burns the altar and the stones under it. So it's a huge moment. There's tons of success, like hundreds or thousands of people see the power of true God and then he rounds up the prophets and has them executed for speaking on false gods. So you can go ahead and put it up, actually, at the next one. So Jezebel, who was the queen of part of the Assyrian Empire, says, send a message to Elijah. May the gods punish me and do so severely. If I do not make your life like the life of the one of them by this time tomorrow, them referring to the prophets that he had killed. Then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba there that belonged to Judah, he left his servants there. But he went on a day's journey into the wilderness and sat under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I have enough. I've had enough. Lord, take my life for I'm no better than my father's. Then he lay down and went to sleep under the broom tree. So, again, it just came off a huge moment. Like Elijah is one of those when Jesus first comes back or not first comes back, when he comes back, the prophets ask him, like, who are you? Like, are you Elijah? Because he's such a massively important figure. I'd say he's probably the t- one of the top prophets in the Old Testament. And all three of these guys, like, none of them are ordinary guys, but they're all prophets chosen by God. Like, they're in the Bible. They wrote books of the Bible. Like, they're super upstanding people, but we all see them struggling with depression. We all see them wishing that they would die, just having enough with life. So I feel like it's a fair statement, if any of those guys can suffer with depression, that having depression isn't an indication of your faith. Like, it doesn't show that you have a lack of faith in any way. It doesn't show that you have some sin that's caused your depression. That being said, how you deal with your depression, I would argue, is an indication of your faith. So ask the question, when you're talking about depression with others or you're experiencing your depression, are you trying to get help from people or are you just trying to get attention? You can put that point up too, Ashley so anyone who has kids or they've babysit before or you were in here worship and saw all the kids in front of you and you saw Maggie twirling and dancing and running around the front like you know that for kids like if you're getting attention like it's good attention like it doesn't matter how you're getting attention or what you're doing like you just like that attention And like depression is the same beast it's a catch 22 of you want You feel lonely, and so you want to have conversation with people because you feel lonely. But just talking about it doesn't really fix the long-term issues of your depression. So you just get, like, a little hit at a time of I'm telling somebody I'm depressed. We talk about it. I feel better because I don't feel lonely because I'm talking to somebody. But that on its own doesn't actually fix your depression. So, like, and even when you're talking to people, are you taking the advice that people are giving you? Like, it's enough to talk about it. We need to talk about it. We need to be open and vulnerable. But are they giving bad advice? Because if they're giving you bad advice, like, you probably should be talking to other people. Like, that's an indication you're talking to the wrong people, let's be honest. So you can go ahead and put the next one, actually. So we're going to go to John uh, chapter 5, verse 2 through 7. And this one seems a little obscure and out there, but just kind of stick with me on it. So, by the sheeps gate in Jerusalem, there's a a pool called Bathsheba in Hebrew which has five colonnades, which is, that's Hebrew for just columns. Um, Within these lay a large number of sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the movement of the water, because an angel would go down into the pool from time to time and stir up the water. Then the first one who got in after the water was stirred up recovered from whatever ailment they had. One man had been lying there sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Sir, the sick man answered, I don't have a man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, someone always goes down ahead of me." So yeah, again, a little background, because the Bible's 2,000 years old, so like not everything makes sense. It's a pool, and it was kind of everybody's last resort. If you had somebody that had a disability, was crippled, just a chronic illness, and they had no idea how to fix it, they would drop you off at this pool. And the idea was that this angel would touch it and it would have magical healing abilities for the first person who was ever in it. Kind of strange, but that's what they believed. Um, and so though it seems kind of cold to like just drop somebody off for 38 years, this really was like the act of good faith. Like you had faith that if he got into that water, like God would heal him in some fashion. So Jesus asked him a very simple question., like, Do you want to be healed? should just be a simple answer but instead this guy goes about and tells him you like life's not fair someone always beats me I'm just lonely I don't have people to help me like the guy just needed to say yes and Jesus does go on to heal him but it brings up that interesting point of like are you talking to people to talk are you talking to try to get help Uh, like and I get it like talking to friends is super nice and helpful like I personally think I'm a great friend you know like I love to talk to people. I'm a friendly person, like, I like to put lamps together for people, you know, like, help out Sprouts. (laughs) But, like, I've never rewired someone's house, because I know if I did, like, it would burn down in, like, a week. So, like, you have to understand, like, where your limitations are, because I can't go and talk to a friend. Like, I could talk to Brandon about issues I'm having, but I can't expect to have results like I went to a counselor from talking to Brandon. Brandon's not a counselor. Like, he didn't go to school for this. Like, you've got to make sure that you're, when you're seeking help and talking to people, that you're talking to the right people. And, like, talking to a friend is safe. Like, I know Brandon for a little bit. Like, we could talk about stuff. It'd be nice and comfortable. But we've got to get into that state of vulnerability. Um, it was said this morning during prayer, the prayer circle that through being uncomfortable, that's what leads to growth, like stepping out into that uncomfortable state of nature. And if you're not willing to step into that uncomfortable state, you're really limiting how much you're able to grow. And, like, counselors have gone to school for years. Like, it's scary, it's weird, it's awkward sitting there pouring out to someone, telling them your life story when you've never met them before coming to sit there and you know you're kind of paying them to listen to you, so it feels like a weird obligation. But they've studied on how to rewire the human brain and how to help people process emotions that don't come as a natural process. And of course, the biggest fear with that always comes the conversation of medication. Like, what if I go to a counselor, and I talk to the counselor, and they wanna start prescribing medication? Like, What then? What's the biblical response to taking depression medications? So Jenny Allen, you can put up that quote for me, once said that antidepressants are there to help you get your head above water so you can think clearly about the next steps. So, again, I have a toddler, so most of my images I give are, like, through the eyes of a toddler kind of situation. So, like, when teaching a kid to swim, you buy them water wings. You buy the little, like, ducky floaty that you put on them and stuff to help them, like, stay above water so they learn how to kick and move their arms and get comfortable in the water. But you don't buy that with the intention of them having that for the rest of their life. That'd be really ridiculous and insane to see, like, a full adult, like, in the ducky float with water wings. Like, like that'd be hilarious. Yeah. That's how Billy does his swimming. That's why his times are so great. He's got the float to keep him above water. Like. Sorry, Billy. <laughs> and besides that, like, the human body is an amazing creation. Whenever we provide it with something, it's going to stop making it on its own. Like It's just an astounding thing. So if we take these long-term antidepressant medications, like your body's going to stop making serotonin, and it stops making dopamine. A really common example of this like who drinks coffee all right who drinks twice as much coffee as they did when they first started and you notice that like caffeine doesn't have the same effect on you anymore you could drink a cup of coffee and go right to sleep it's because your body's built up a natural immunity to it Psalms 65 5 through 6 says I depend on God alone I put my hope in him alone he protects and saves me he is my defender I should never be defeated my salvation and honor depend on God. He is my strong protector and shelter. The Bible is very clear. Like we don't need to rely on other stuff. We don't need to lean into other things. If we ever hit a point where we've got to have something else to make it through the day, like we're in a very dangerous area. It should never be a, I've got to have a Zoloft or Lexapro or Prozac or my cup of coffee or my CBD oil or my essential oils to make it through the day. Okay. It's got to be a, we need to rely on God. We should never need to rely on essential oils, caffeine, (laughs) CBD, various medications. (laughs) All right, so as I mentioned earlier, I'm a firefighter with Columbia. So I'm actually, I'm uh, Station Six, which is the Broad River St. Andrews area. Um, If you went to the Community Day with Reconciliation at Betty Downs, like, that's my first due, that whole area. We're not just six, we call ourselves Super Six. And our logo is like a Six and a Superman logo, because we do everything. Um, we do all of your 20 and 26 wrecks, we do the river rescues, we run the most shootings in Columbia on Long Creek. I've, a couple weeks ago, I wore a bulletproof vest to force down a door for CPD. Like, we do literally everything: ODs, CPRs. We're the busiest engine company in all of Columbia, all of the state of South Carolina and. We alternate back and forth with a a couple companies, but usually the busiest in the entire southeastern United States. Like, we run nonstop, which is why Vic is very stressed out a lot of the time, heads up. So it's really cool to talk about, and I love telling stories because we have super intense calls, but that's not every call. In fact, most of the time when we get a call at 4 in the morning, it's someone whose head hurts and they can't sleep. I've had a couple of times someone tell me that they're having trouble breathing, and they're smoking a cigarette while they're telling me they're having trouble breathing at four in the morning. Like, it's a very patience trying situation. And I've got this coworker Harrison, and if you know Jamie Purvis, you can ask him. He's worked with Harrison a little bit. He's an interesting dude. Um, he actually has a tattoo of a slice of pizza with sunglasses on his leg, uh, and he's got like a mural of like a VW bus driving up a mountain on his arm. Like he's he's out there, dude. And he's one of those people that's so happy, it's just exhausting to be around. Like, you can only take so much of it, and you're like, please, Harrison, just go sit down somewhere. And he'll be just as happy at that 4 a.m. call as when we clocked in. And he'll be talking to the patient, he'll be asking about their pictures of the kids on the wall, exchanging stories, and he's trying to be personable. Harrison doesn't have kids. He has a cat that's named Dot, and he'll tell people about his cat named Dot. Like He's just out there. So one day, I asked Harrison, I was like, all right, man, how are you not annoyed at four in the morning? Like, I'm sitting there trying to think of, like, how much sleep I still can have, if I can take a nap tomorrow, like, what the plans are, like, I'm so annoyed with being here. How are you not? And he told me, it's a great quote that I'll never forget. He said, everyone has a capacity for how much they can take. At a certain point, they don't know what to do, but they know they're in over their head. It may seem small to us because it's not a CPR or a gunshot, but to them, they're drowning. And there's no reason for us to belittle them for admitting that they need help just because we've seen way worse. And it really hurt my spirit because I realized in that moment, I like, would gotten so used to the high volume and the intense calls that i become very like unsympathetic. Like I wasn't downright rude to people, please don't take it that way, but like, I wasn't going the extra mile to show the love that I should be showing. And depression is the same way because we hear about it in the news constantly, and you can't get away from it. It's just everywhere we look. We've all become a little callous towards it. Like we, do, when somebody says they're depressed, like, hey man, so am I. Like, so are they. We all go through depression. Like, there's like a FOMO around it where people feel like they need to like talk about having depression, or they're going to miss out on something. And we're just like, it's a part of life. You know, let's move on. But that's not really what Jesus would want us to do here. So like, think back to when Jesus is tr- like, tricked by the Pharisees, where they're trying to trap him, and they ask him, what's the greatest commandment of all? He says, love God, and what? Love your neighbor. So if we're not really engaging in these conversations with people about depression, if we're kind of just brushing over it and acting like it's whatever, we're we really loving our neighbor like Jesus would want us to love. You know, Jesus, every time he talks about running into someone, if you ever pay attention to the geography, it's way out of the way like the woman at the well, he walks way out of the way to go to Samaria to meet this lady. Like, If he's willing to walk days out of the way to talk to a person, are we really reflecting God's love and we're just like, hey man, I'm sorry you're sad. I'll pray for you. Like, It's not really doing much. So about a month ago, we were in Fight Club. I know I'm not supposed to talk about it, but I'm going to. (laughs) And we were having a very, very deep theological conversation that had to record about kidney stones. So just keep up with me. (laughs) So if you don't know, Kevin Lynn is the most knowledgeable person on kidney stones I've ever met in my life. Like, it is remarkable. You could talk about where you're hurting, and he can tell you, like, which kidney it's in, what part of your kidney, if it's followed into your urinary tract. He could probably guesstimate, like, the size of the kidney stone. Like, he could tell you how to change your diet and, like, what the different doctor procedures will do and how it'll affect you. It's crazy. I never expected when, like talking about my dad's kidney stones for us to have this deep conversation about it. It was impressive. But the thing is like, Kevin's willing to help anybody and he'll talk to you about it forever. But that knowledge didn't come free to Kevin. Like Kevin went through years of chronic kidney stones and pain to the point where he just didn't feel kidney stones anymore to have this knowledge that he's willing to share with people. He's such an expert, like he could probably earn some college credit for just like his experience that he has alone. And it really like, it resonated with me, because we should all be a little bit more like Kevin, like, not just because of the beard, but because he was willing to be open and vulnerable with everybody. He was willing to tell people his entire past. And, like We need to be more open and vulnerable with people for the sake of helping them, for the sake of trying to move them through their depression. There's this misconception with our testimonies, that like, your testimony is the story of like, how you met Jesus, when really your testimony is a story about how you're trying to be more like Jesus. Like there's never an end to your testimony because you'll never really be there. And so you got to think about it. Like what if God allowed you to go through some of the depression that you've gone through in your life for the sake of helping someone else? Like what if there's someone in this room who has the same stems and root causes as what you've had in your depression and you've worked through? What if you're supposed to be opening vulnerable and talk, about your depression, because it's gonna impact the person sitting next to you and help them to make the right steps. And it's something we'll never experience unless we're all willing to hit that level of uncomfortable vulnerability, that uncomfortable that leads to the real growth in life. All right, this is my last thing, and you just gotta stick with me with this one. We're gonna look back at the stories of Jonah and Elijah. So we don't have anything to put up, so you just gotta to listen to me, but we both know these guys are prophets. They made it into the Bible. They're big prophets. They both wish that God would kill them. So Jonah chapter four goes on and Jonah's sitting down in the desert and it's miserably hot and God grows a little plant that comes up and shades over him and Jonah relaxes and it's nice and the next day God sends a little worm and it eats the plant, plant dies and Jonah's angry and Jonah says again like God just kill me. Like, there's no, there's no shade. There's not worth living. And so God condemns him and says, like, you cared more about that plant than the 120,000 people in Nineveh. And that's where Jonah goes on to explain, like, I knew you would give them mercy. They don't deserve mercy. And that's the last we see of Jonah. He's never mentioned again. He's never talked about. We don't know what happens. Like, he could have sat there and just died in the sun right there for all we know. That's it. So in Elijah, on the other hand, Elijah tells God, like, take my life. I'm done. I'm tired of everybody hating me. I'm tired of doing your work and just finding more pain. Like, if that's not a story for, like, what Brandon was talking about, like, it's because you know God. Like, it doesn't make life easier. Like, Elijah is considered a top-three prophet, and everybody wanted to kill him. Like, I don't want to be like that. Like, that's terrible. And so God sends this angel down and feeds him. Like, he wakes up, and there's warm bread back, so I'm going to eat it. And then he goes back to sleep. And then God comes down and sends the angel down again, Tells him to get up and to walk to Mount Horeb, which, if you know anything, again, biblical uh, maps, that's where Moses originally got the Ten Commandments. Like, it's a super holy place in Christian history. And it's a 40 day walk. So imagine, like, you're like, man, God, I just want to die. I'm tired of people trying to kill me. And the guy's like, go walk 40 days. Like, <laughs> it's not going to make me want to live. But that's what Elijah does. Like, he gets up and he walks the 40 days, he does what God tells him to. And on that mountain is the scene where Elijah describes God talking to him as a whisper. Like he didn't come in the wind. He didn't come in the earthquake. He didn't come in the firestorm. He came in like a whisper on his shoulder. And in this, we see like both sides of this equation. Like God gave the same love to both the prophets. It didn't matter what their past was. Elijah had been the one who had been blindly following God and doing what he said no matter how ridiculous it seemed. He poured water on an altar that he was trying to set on fire. And Jonah, on the other hand, literally ran as far away as he could possibly run. And in both of them, we see God giving shade, giving food, comforting them. He didn't discriminate his help just because of what someone's past is. Just because Jonah's been struggling before, he gets less. No, it's the same love. It's that universal love. But then we also see how the prophets reacted. Jonah chose to stay and sit in the muck, and sit in his self-pity and his hatred for everyone. And Elijah decided, I'm going to get up and I'm going to do what God tells me to do and has one of his most intimate moments with God. And it's only like four chapters later that we see God come down with chariots of fire and lift Elijah up and take him. Like Elijah didn't die. Because of his faithfulness, God just took him to heaven. He's one of the only two people in the Bible for that to happen to. So as we're going about our life, we really got to think, if you're struggling with depression, are you a person who's taking those uncomfortable steps? Are you a person who's actually moving the way we're supposed to be moving? Or are you just sitting there want to talk to people? Is it just the fear of missing out? Is it just because it's the cool thing that we all talk about in life now? How, you know, today sucked. Like it's not been a good week. And then how are we really loving others? Are we just letting it be casual conversation? Or are we checking in on people are we seeing if they're actually getting the help that they need to be getting in life are we just fulfilling that checkbox of i'll pray for you and then we bring it up as an unspoken prayer in a prayer time like what are we really doing to help people and what are we really doing to help ourselves to an extent so the band starts to come back up and we get ready to go back into worship i want everybody to close their eyes we're going to ask these questions and like they're uncomfortable questions. We really need to self-ponder it. And we don't need to look around and be nosy. Like let's focus on ourselves here. We're going to think like, are you a person when talking about your depression that you truly are just desiring this attention? Like you want that small momentary high of feeling not lonely. Or are you a person that's just been around so many talks of depression, you're just burned out by it? You don't really care? You're kind of hoping people don't talk to you about their depression anymore? You just want to move through your life alone and not, not worry about the others? Like, life's hard enough on your own. Or are you a person who's got an amazing testimony? how God changed your life and moved you through your seasons of depression. But you're just too scared to be open. You're too scared to, to worry about other people's judgment. Like always, guys, if you want somebody to pray with, we have people in the back with the yellow lanyards. They would love to talk to you and pray for you about any of this. God, as we come before you today, push us push our hearts don't let us rely on our own wisdom in this situation let us feel what your answer to these questions are lord let us know that you know our identity isn't in the judgment of people around us it's not in what we feel about ourselves or what we hear satan saying to us but like our identity isn't you like when we took up that name as a christian and a follower of jesus like that is who we became that's what you see us as, Lord. Help us to, to be more like you in all ways, Lord. Help us to be more compassionate to those around us, more willing to help, more willing to go that extra mile to talk to that one person who we know is hurting. And help us, Lord, to be willing to be uncomfortable. If you were able to go through the terrible pains that you did on the cross for us, we should be willing to just have an awkward conversation with someone about how our life is difficult. Lord. Just be with us throughout this week, and I pray for everyone here that you put someone in their life this week, either someone for them to go talk to about an issue or someone that they need to go talk to about getting help. That there's, Don't leave it to them to try to move on their own spirit, Lord, but I want you to make it a roadblock in their life an undeniable person, that this is who we talk to this week, Lord. Just thank you for everything you do for us, Lord, and just allowing us to even be here today. We thank you for everything. Amen. And we pray. Amen.